0: Now, it may seem a little strange to see me up here outside of my normal haunts downstairs, but, uh, and I'll admit it's been a long time since I preached up here at the pulpit. Uh, in fact, I think the last time I did it, I was thin like John, and I didn't need these suspenders. <laughs> now, one of the reasons that I really love the Bible is that it never ceases to challenge me to go deeper and deeper. And every once in a while, I even discover a puzzle or a paradox that really gets me to thinking. And this morning, for instance, did you know that the Bible tells us to do two opposite things at the same time? And it's right there in Paul's letter to the Galatians. This morning, we're going to look at the first five verses of Galatians 6, and I'm calling this message simply Restoration. And we're going to jump right in and, and just read the verse. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, and I'm going to go ahead and take a little sidelight here, because for most of this message, I'm going to use the word sin instead of transgression, but it means more than that. Um, If you want to apply it for any time you disagree with somebody, where you think they're wrong, then you're thinking they're in a transgression, all right? So you can substitute the things that we're going to be talking about, either for an actual sin Or just the fact that they're wrong and they're not thinking the way you are, or they're not uh, acting the way you think they should, and they're doing something wrong. If you could substitute the word they're wrong, that, that fits. Okay, so, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now this passage often confused me because it seemed to contradict what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.11. Where he says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother... If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or if it's an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. It also seems contrary to what I'd learned about church discipline in Matthew 18. Which, you know, as you know, can result ultimately in a church turning away from a brother or sister who is in unrepentant sin. But Paul is here saying that we're supposed to bear the burdens of those we find in a sin... And how can you do that and turn away from the person who's in sin at the same time? Well, that part might not be as complicated as it seems. Because Paul is definitely saying that we're supposed to bear with that person that we find in a transgression and keep doing it regardless of how long it takes. But if that person's transgression or their actions or whatever make you unsafe in any way or make the body unsafe, if it, if it becomes a problem in that regard, or if they know they're sinning and they're unwilling to be restored, then Paul's other things come into play and then we, stronger action has to be taken to accomplish that restoration in their life. But this leads to the other conundrum in the verse. On the one hand in the passage... Paul says that when we discover a brother or sister caught in a sin, we're to carefully bear their burdens. But then a little further on in verse 5, he says that each one of us, including them, are supposed to bear their own burdens and not to depend on anyone else. So how can you do both? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But first, we have to establish who Paul is talking to. There's two groups of people in this passage. The first one is to Christians, brothers and, spirit, uh, brothers and sisters who are spiritual. These are people who know Christ and are interested in serving him in a meaningful way, people who want to fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? We don't really know because it's only mentioned in this particular verse and may be alluded to in 1 Corinthians 9.21. Now, some believe it's referring to the law Or the covenant, the new one that God will write on our hearts that was prophesied by Isaiah and Ezekiel. Others, however, point to Jesus' own teaching that he's the fulfillment of the law himself. And that he explains that the whole law can be summed up in these two, loving God and loving your neighbor. Perhaps that's the law of Christ. But in a nutshell, it looks like this verse is written to those who are spiritual, the ones who know Christ and want to live like him. The second group are those that are addressed to those in any kind of a transgression. Are these Christians? Almost certainly. Because you can't restore somebody that hasn't been stored in the first place. But these brothers or sisters have a bit of a problem. They're caught in a transgression. They've been overtaken, ensnared, overpowered by sin. They're caught in a trap. Newsflash, Christian sin. Now, they may not have realized that what they're doing is sin, the Holy Spirit might not yet have convicted them that yet that what they're doing is sin, or they may be absolutely sincerely convinced, either through just their, what they've been taught, what they think, what they've studied, that what they're doing is not sin at all. And on the other hand, I've been a Christian a very long time, and I've been in churches where, where they believe that a lot of things are sin. That looking back, I'm very surprised that, and I think none of us might believe that there's sin at this point. I went to one church when I was first saved where any woman was in sin if she was caught any time wearing pants. Because wearing pants was men's clothes, and wearing a man's clothes is prohibited in the Bible. Another church that I went to believed that it was a sin to have tattoos. Or another one, it was a sin if you shopped at all on a Sunday. And so forth and so on. And most of them had pretty good biblical reasons behind what they did. uh, But they considered to break any of these things were absolutely sins. So when we get to be looking at somebody, assuming we're right, but we need to remember that regardless of what we've been taught or what we read in the Bible, there's always the possibility that we could be wrong in our interpretation because God is the judge of what's right and wrong we're not but assuming we're right and that what we're observing in somebody else is a transgression we have an obligation to restore the one who is sinning so what kind of sin is Paul talking about well it could be anything and we don't really know from this passage but any sin no matter how small separates us from God It doesn't matter if it's anger, overeating, lying, pornography, stealing, greed, or gossip, or any other thing. All of these things can easily trap a believer. And Paul assigns to each one of us who love Christ the responsibility to bear that brother or sister's burden of sin. That's right, we're to bear their burden of sin. That's what the Bible says. But at the same time, we need to be careful. There's peril in bearing that sin for them. We need to keep watch so that we don't fall into sin ourselves. Because the last thing we want to do is have their sin become our sin, and then we have to have someone come in and bear our burden at the same time. But as I said at the beginning, Paul is also saying that it's the responsibility of the sinner... To carry his or her own load by themselves and not to be dependent on their neighbor to do it for them. Well, how can these two ideas work together? The answer, I think, is found first in the, in the beginning part of verse 1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, of gentleness. The key to this conundrum is the word restore. It's the Greek word keratizo, and it's used 13 times in the New Testament, and it's been translated in a variety of different ways. And looking at some of the ways that it's used both in the New Testament and in the secular literature at the time will help us understand how the Galatians heard that word and how we should hear it too. The first reference that we're going to look at is in Matthew 4.21. This is the same story that's found in Mark 1.19. It's when Jesus was choosing his first apostles. And it says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. You see, James and John were in their father's boat, keratizoing the nets. But you say, what does mending nets have to do with bearing a burden? Well, first, consider the problem. When a net is torn, it's easy for the fish to escape, and so the net can't really do its job at all. Sin is a lot like that. Now, a ripped net can be fixed, but it takes a lot of painstaking effort, patience, and skill, because sometimes the holes are huge. And there's quite an art to patching the net. First, you have to find a strong place on the net where you can attach the repair. Then you have to tie a series of knots in a particular sequence and loops and so forth going around in a particular way so that it ends up where you can anchor it off in another strong place on the net. But once you have it completed, that net that you repaired is going to be indistinguishable from the whole rest of the net and when it's ready to go and catch fish and will be as strong as before. When we bear another person's burden, it's like we're helping them patch the holes in their life that have been ripped there by sin. Let me show you how similar this is to all the other examples of keratizo that we'll look at. It's how we restore the one caught in sin. You see, repairing, restoring, and preparing for future service is the same idea found in 1 Peter 5.10. But here we see a little bit more about what's required. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The person who is keratized is confirmed, strengthened, and established. But note who's doing those things. It's Christ Himself. In other places, this word is used to convey the idea of creating or preparing something for a particular purpose. In Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. You see, the universe was keratizod, or prepared, by the word of God. And then in Hebrews 10.5, it talks about the, that the body of Christ was keratizod. Consequently, when Christ came into the world he said Sacrifice and offerings you've not desired, but a body you prepared for me. So it's God that caratizos. It's holy work. It's work that can't be done apart from God and his holy word, making changes in the human heart. But what a privilege it is that we are allowed to participate in that holy work with God. Now in secular Greek literature, the word is also used to describe healing a broken bone or resetting a dislocated joint back into place. And that's the sense that Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians 1.10 when he's addressing the various conflicts in the Corinthian church that have turned brothers and sisters into various opposing factions. He says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree And there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul wants them to be keratizo, united, mended together in the same mind and the same judgment. He wants them to be restored like a broken bone being mended together. Now another important use of the word is equipping or completing. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10... Paul prays that what the Thessalonians are lacking in their faith might be completed or supplied. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Praying to God that they might have a part in helping the Thessalonians have what they need supplied to them. Now, this is similar to the way the word is used to describe the repairing and resupplying of a ship that's come back from battle, or to equip an army that's getting ready to go to war. Think of it as the nets being prepared to go out and go fishing. God promises in Hebrews thirteen twenty to caretizo each one of us in every good thing so we can accomplish his will. Where it says, now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you might do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, for whom be glory and honor forever. Amen. Note that the reason that we're restored, the reason that we're keter is not to avoid punishment or consequence for our sin. We're equipped so we can do God's will. Now, Jesus speaks of a different kind of equipping in Luke 6.40. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is the sense that is used when we see in Ephesians 4.11-13, when Jesus gave gifts to the church to keratizo, the saints, for the work of the ministry. Because this is, after all, the whole purpose of baratizo is to prepare the saints for the work of the ministry. And it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, sometimes... Bearing somebody else's burden is a thankless task. Sometimes it's not quick or easy or enjoyable. Sometimes it's not even possible. But we can't lose hope or stop doing it just because we're not seeing the results that we expect. Because sometimes God has a whole different thing in mind. Sometimes, well, let me just read what he says here in Romans about people who are keratizoed for destruction. He says, what if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the purpose of our burden bearing, of course, is always to make known the riches of God's glory, regardless of the outcome in our particular situation. If someone that we're working with refuses to be restored, Their destruction serves to highlight the blessing that God bestows with his mercy on those who are willing to be restored. So regardless of how it turns out, God gets the glory. So with all this in mind, let's look back at our scripture and see how it fits together. It's up on the screen here, I'm not going to read it again. But we'll go through and it says, so how does this help us understand this part of the letter to the Galatians? First, we needed to realize that because of sin, nets get torn, limbs get broken, and relationships are strained. Restoration is going to be required. Second, God doesn't want any of us to think of ourselves as being special, somehow better than those people with torn nets. It's not our job to point out flaws in their nets, assign blame, or criticize. It's not the time for condemnation or punishment, even the passive-aggressive kind. We're supposed to be bearing a burden, not creating a new one. Let me give you an example from some time ago. My daughters were homeschooled, and a lot of their friends were from families that were even more conservative than we were. But I remember one time when my barely junior high school-aged daughter came home from a church function visibly upset. She'd worn a Harry Potter t-shirt, and some of her friends had told her that a parent had told them that reading Harry Potter was a sinful book, or that Harry Potter was a sinful book, and reading it would make anybody that read it would go to hell. Well, someone apparently saw somebody that they believed, a sister that they believed to be in sin. There were lots of ways they could have worked to restore my daughter, but what they did The path that they chose did just the opposite. What what they did was add a burden of condemnation and doubt to my daughter instead of building her up and restoring her. Instead of coming alongside and, and helping to restore her from her sin, they just left her to worry that she wasn't acceptable to other Christians or to God, who obviously were much more concerned with what she was wearing than what was in her heart. This kind of burden often causes people to turn away from God or just turn away from the church because the hypocrisy of people who are preaching all about a God of love but live and talk like he's anything but that. My daughter's doing fine now, but it took until she went off to college and she still loved God, but she didn't want to have anything to do with church until she found a church that was an authentic, loving church that knew how to care a and put it into practice. So what does bearing somebody else's burden look like? Well, the best example I can use is Simon of Cyrene when he uh, carried Jesus' cross up to the crucifixion. What he carried was not his cross and he didn't carry it for long but it was the Lord's. And Paul talks about how heavy the burden of sin is. There's nothing heavier. Sa- he talks about Even though the sin belongs to the one who did it, with some empathy and love and respect, the burden of it can be shared by the rest of us who are spiritual. Now, the people at the crisis pregnancy center, the counselors there, they have that down pat. Their clients may be Christian girls caught in a sin, and some are still deep in their sin, even unwilling to repent. Nevertheless, the counselors don't blame them, they don't punish them. They don't criticize. They commit to walking beside these girls before and after the birth of their baby. Loving them, equipping them, and helping to them until they're fully restored. This can sometimes put the counselors in some very uncomfortable positions. Because dealing with sin can be pretty ugly. These counselors aren't embracing the sin, but they're completely and wholeheartedly embracing the girls just imagine if the whole church embraced every sin that way because it's the same way that jesus wholeheartedly embraces each one of us while we were still deep within our sin we almost left out a very important part of this verse though did you notice that we're not only to restore the one who sins we're to do it in a spirit of gentleness Those operating in a spirit of gentleness do not judge, ridicule, or complain. Sin is disappointing and sad. It's even shocking sometimes. But if your goal is restoration in a spirit of gentleness, uh, there's no room on your part for anger, disgust, or even exasperation. One pastor put it this way. We can get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, we're just plain wrong. The same God that commands us to love our enemies and those who abuse us certainly expects us to love our brothers and sisters who are caught in a transgression. Often we're so consumed by what we think is proper that we forget how to love. Love isn't trying to fix someone, show them their faults, or do deeds out of a sense of duty. This is selfishness. It's very hard for us not to go that way. That's our natural, normal human reaction to step out and say, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to show you the error of your ways. I'm going to make you like me. But it's not very effective. Have you noticed that when you, when you try to talk to somebody and you try to demand that you're right, that they often will ignore you or turn against you or resist you? But if you sit there and you, uh, if they, you can make them feel loved and accepted and respected, then they often become open to considering a different perspective. That's what the Bible talks about, things like a soft answer turns away wrath, or it's good to keep your mouth shut, or to hear both sides of an issue before you speak. The Bible throughout is more concerned with you hearing and listening and caring and loving than it is about demanding your own way. Now, we know we can find out um, if we are being consumed by love instead of selfishness, if our love looks like what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. And we're all familiar with it, but here with the ears of of somebody caught in a transgression, where it says that love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. Paul put it this way to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians 5.14. And he says, we encourage you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, And be patient with them all. And in the verse that uh, Conrad read at the beginning of the service, in 2 Timothy 2, but I'm going to begin at verse 22, Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, because you know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, and here's why. So God may perhaps, may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So if we want to be like those spiritual people, that the Galatians that he's writing to, if we want to call on the Lord with a pure heart, that we need to seek after righteousness, faith, and love, but we need to avoid controversies and quarrels and focus instead on being gentle and kind with our teaching and correction, patiently enduring evil until God grants them repentance. Of course, sometimes correction and church discipline may be needed, But the goal of all of this is always restoration. It can be painful sometimes to cut out the bad parts of the net or to move a broken bone into place or to uh, refurbish a damaged vessel. If you've ever been to boot camp or had to study for a final exam, you know that it's painful sometimes to become equipped to do the job that God's called you to do. But we just need to remember to treat others the way we would want to be treated if we were in that circumstance but it's more than that. The Bible tells us that real love means counting others more important than ourselves. We need to realize that we're no better than the ones we're trying to help. As we saw in verse 3 of our passage, Paul said that if anybody thinks he's something, not something special, just something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. The reality is, Without Christ, we are nothing. And so I'm wondering if without Christ, we're better than somebody with a broken net. Or No, it says we're nothing. The reality is, is that we need to understand that it's a privilege that we've been given to sit in a boat and patiently, slowly, and painstakingly work with our brothers and sisters to replace the bad parts of their nets, making sure our nets aren't torn in the, per- in the process we need to patiently bear with our brothers and sisters to help them find space to heal, to be equipped and trained as God supplies what's lacking in their faith and until God grants them repentance. Now, this is important. It's not our job to make someone repent or to convince them of the error of their ways. Now, we can gently teach, but it's God that grants repentance the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin, our job is to just bear their burden and to help them be restored. Now, not everyone will help restore in the same way. There's going to be some of us who are going to be patching nets, but some of us will be refurbishing the boats or stocking the army. Some of us will help prepare others by being teachers or equippers, and others will be setting broken bones or bandaging wounds. But here's where we get to the other kind of burden bearing, the kind that Paul talked about starting in verse 4. It says, but let each one of us test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now we burden bearers, we ones who've been restoring, need to realize that the nets we've so carefully helped repair are not our nets. At some point, the holes have been fixed and have been patched. The limb is healed and the ship refitted. The army's been equipped. The one who's been restored now has to go out and do what God has called them to do. They can't keep their arm in a cast to keep it from getting broken or leave their nets on the shore to keep them from getting ripped again. They need to use what God has provided so they can go out and fight the battle. It's time for them to go and test the part that's been restored. They need to bear their own load, just like we have to bear our own load. So if we understand what Paul's telling the Galatians, we see that the Bible tells us to do two seemingly opposite things at the same time. We bear somebody else's burden so each of us can bear our own load. In other words, we help those with broken nets repair them, So that they can go out and go fishing, while at the same time, we're taking care of our nets so we can go fishing too. That's a beautiful picture of the way the body of Christ is supposed to function. Now, I suspect that some of you might be uncomfortable with the picture I've been trying to paint. You might be thinking, well, doesn't God tell me to be holy as God is holy? And God has nothing to do with sin. Why should I? Well, God has everything to do with sin. If he didn't, none of us would be saved. And once we're saved without God being deeply involved in each of our sins, we would never be sanctified. We'd never grow to become more like him. Remember, Jesus came to earth to minister to sinners and die, taking their sins upon him. Now he resides in you and me, and the Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sins. And he's guiding us into all truth. Sometimes, he even allows us to be part of his restorative work in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Because you see, restoration is God's continuous and ongoing work in the lives of his people. It's God's love in action. Yes, we're the ones that are told to restore somebody caught in a transgression. But there's really only so much that we can do. Paul reminds us that we're nothing. Who do you think provides the string to patch the net? And who gives us the supplies to restock the ship or the army? And we can set a bone, but who heals it together? And whose knowledge is it that the teacher imparts to the student? Let me close with this last example of keratizo. In 2 Corinthians 13.11, Paul shows us how restoration is an essential part of the law of Christ loving our God and loving our neighbor. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask you to help each one of us take hold of this idea of restoration Help us to understand that this is holy work that you would have us to do with you, that you might work through us to restore our brothers and sisters caught in a transgression. Help us to have hearts that are tender, hearts that are gentle, hearts that are loving and accepting, Lord. And we give you praise and glory because we've seen that so much toward us. Let us show that to our others. In Jesus' name, amen.